I'm Lavinia. And I'm Kelly. Welcome to season two of There She Goes, where women writers share true stories of travel, their stories, their experiences told in their own voices. There's a specific kind of magic that happens when women go traveling, and the stories that spring from those experiences are diverse and limitless. Stories of harrowing escapades, quiet epiphanies, powerful connections, transformative moments, and wild possibilities. There She Goes is a storytelling podcast. It's also an invitation to escape, briefly, to some distant elsewhere with a kindred companion. We hope it offers the exact travel infusion you need right now, whatever that looks like. Maybe it's a vicarious journey to hold you over till you're ready to go exploring again, or inspiration for your next adventure. We love sharing these stories and storytellers with you. So pack your bags and settle in, because here we go. Today we travel with Jacqueline Luckett to Siam Reap, Cambodia, where she follows in her son's footsteps, searching for the way back to him. Jacqueline is the author of the novels Passing Love and Searching for Tina Turner. Her essays have been published in Best Women's Travel Writing, 2011 and 2020, and the Huffington Post. She received her MFA in creative writing and writing for the performing arts from the University of California, Riverside. The Bay Area native lives in Oakland and continues her travels to nurture her passion for photography and exotic foods. I'm Jacqueline Luckett, reading my story, Traveling with Ghosts. The ghost of my son, my boy now man, appeared as my airplane descended into the twilight surrounding Siam Reap. His profile etched the rays of the falling sun. He was not dead physically. He was not dead spiritually either, just gone from me. He traveled to the kingdom of Cambodia six months before me alone, a celebration of his early college graduation, a celebration of independence. I too was traveling alone, no celebrations of independence or otherwise, merely another trip to quell my restlessness, to be someplace other than where I was. I'm told my son sent long emails to many, adults and peers, detailing his travels, but I wasn't included on that list. Spite, a desire to punish, or a young man's penchant for privacy, the reasons didn't matter. The lack of connection did. From my seat, I watched his spirit grow stronger as the plane neared the ground, and I understood the message. I would find the link to him in this foreign land. The airport resembled a holy place, arch roofs, edges dabbed with gold, a sacred gateway to another world. The air was clean, the humidity palpable, insects droned their welcome. A young Khmer woman stood beneath a pointed arch and requested with a courteous bow, boarding passes, passports, and shiny holographic visas. I sensed my son there in the den of the crowd, and goosebumps danced on my arms. At all of three years old, my son headed confidently toward the gate for his first flight. With the authority of an adult, he held his own boarding pass and approached the purser. I'm positive that he walked through this very gateway with the same assuredness. Like many 20-somethings, he seemed more mature than young adults were in the 60s, my generation. Some of us were bold. Many of us helped change the world. Free love, free speech, free Huey. 
my son's generation appears to know exactly where they want to go and how to handle themselves once they get there. They are aware and sophisticated. I took my first plane ride at the age of 22. My son took his first at the age of three, and even by 1988 standards, he was old. Here in Siem Reap, he'd continued his four-month trek around the world, gifted with the freedom of adventure at such a young age. When had he become that mature, that worldly? I like to think of my son as spontaneous and whimsical in planning the steps of his journey. I like to think of that carefree look on his face, the same one he wore when he was nine and told me, without a thought to the barriers that could stop him, that it was time for him to practice his driving. My skin evokes Africa, Mississippi's Choctaws, and a drop of Europe from way back when. My brown hair is streaked with blonde highlights, and I like to think of my five-foot-six-and-a-half-inch frame as tall. All in all, characteristics of a foreigner in Cambodia. Too tall, too brown, a stranger in a strange land. Not one person looked like me. Not one word could I understand without an English translation. How must my son have felt as he stood here? Black man, young, alone, tall, handsome, backpack and duffel bag, name brand jeans hanging off his narrow hips, an easy American target, the assumption of wealth. I was full of pride for his ability to navigate, to get from point A to B. He seemed more a grown-up at 21 than I at well past 50. My trip was comfortable, pre-planned. A travel agent arranged my itinerary and the services of a guide. What had my son thought of this place or the fact that the cost of his vacation could have fed many Khmer families for months? What would he think if he knew the cost of mine could feed them for years? At the sight of Soka, my guide, and my name on his printed sign, tension dropped from my shoulders. I released my anxiety and my need to multitask, to be in charge and on guard. Soka's English was good, and he was as caring as someone could be to a stranger. On the way to the hotel, my mental camera snapped picture after picture. A wide and bustling boulevard, left side driving, two and three people, young and old, lined on mopeds like nuts on an almond joy. No helmets, fearless faces, cement stocks of buildings going up and coming down, open-air restaurants and picnic tables clustered under single light bulbs, a massage palace parking lot crowded with tour buses, vendors selling spiky orange and green fruits the size of bowling balls, men huddled in the well-lit doorways of souvenir shops, like a view lit by a strobe light, a staccato of many stories flashed in the headlights' white glow. At the Hotel de la Paix, lotus blossoms decorated tables, niches, desks, and pillowcases, their leaves folded back like sleeves on a hot day, revealing luscious pink centers. The hotel was American and modern in texture and style, with straight and modern lines, sleek slate floors, a well-lit pool, and an attentive and accommodating staff. The breeze of air conditioners followed me everywhere. Where did he stay, that son of mine, so accustomed to the comforts his father and I once provided? Was his bed soft? Was there a discreet can of spray beside it to protect him from mosquitoes? 
did his door lock not once but twice, its edge flush with the floor, keeping out hallway light and hot weather critters? For all its acres of treasured temples, Siem Reap felt small. Spirits surrounded me, the ghosts of civil war, news flashes of death, skulls piled high in the killing fields, all hovered in the haze. The boulevard outside my hotel teemed with sad-faced, red-headed street boys, cars, and tuk-tuks, a hybrid of tricycle, open carriage, and moped named for the sound of their tiny engines scuttling through the streets. Dust flew, exhaust fumes tainted the air, moped drivers and passengers stared at me from behind surgical masks. Camera in hand, determined to capture the beauty of CM Reap, I headed in the direction of the old market. I searched for the logic of the streets, neither perpendicular nor parallel to one another. They seemed to feather out at various intersections, and this provoked in me a new feeling, a hesitancy to explore. I was nothing like my son, so eager to drive at the age of nine, so sure of his ability to navigate empty streets and parking lots. Feeling lost and conspicuous, I came across a troop of four boys who looked to be around 11 years old. The tallest one asked for money in perfect English. I tried to ignore him, tossing a few French phrases his way. He repeated his solicitation in perfect French. You speak French, I asked. He shrugged. Espanol, Deutsch, stop, stop. I laughed, handing him my pocket change. You win, now tell me how to get to the market. The old market had multiple personalities, cheerful outside, dark and moody inside, bustling in both places. The exterior shops teemed with a combination of practical and tourist paraphernalia. Buddha heads, silk pillow covers, flip-flops, laundry detergent, brooms fanned wide like palms, plastic buckets in rainbow colors. Inside, the market was dim and full of unexpected turns, a city within a city. Vendors huddled inside six-foot-wide cubbies stacked with floor-to-ceiling goods in perfect symmetry of color and size. Blue scarves, Orange shawls, pink skirts, embroidered handbags. Deep in the center of the market, I saw squiggling eels, battling crabs, skinned chickens and pigs. Fish flopped wildly in raffia baskets, some managing to make their way to the slick floor. I asked each vendor permission, pointing in a sign language of my own invention to my eyes, my camera, and them, meaning Can I take your picture? Of course, their faces said. Take the picture, you idiot. This is nothing but my work. The men and women smirked behind hands cupped across their mouths. If I ever saw my son's pictures, would I find he captured these people too? I snapped in the same way I had those summers when my son ate wedges of watermelon in our backyard and spit the seeds on the lawn. Why are you taking pictures, Mom? I'm just eating watermelon, snap. Later that day, our van crept past small houses on the way to the Siam River, where villages of families lived their entire lives on the water's edge. The road to the river wound through a neighborhood of wooden houses on stilts, fortification against floods. 
Looking at the dry bed of the river behind the structures, though, the tide seemed not out, but permanently gone. No water, just sludge. But this was winter. The rainy season was over. The villagers seemed lifted from 1960s TV, Dan Rather reporting war up close and personal. Those images blended Southeast Asia into a stereotype blur of squatting people. Now, bare-chested men, women in long traditional wrap skirts, children young enough not to be embarrassed by their bare bottoms, all squatted in darkened doorways, in the dirt yards among the chickens, hats, and hands, their only protection from the sun. Off to the side of many homes, ornate miniature houses sat atop thick posts, painted vibrant pinks, reds, and golds. These were spirit houses, detailed with windows and doors, more elaborate than the homes they guarded. Spirals of thin smoke wafted from incense sticks, bright fruits honored the spirits. This was where good spirits lived and protected against mischievous and disruptive ones. Could I take one home, set it beside my front door and lure good spirits to chase away the ghosts of divorce, rehashed arguments, mistakes, and misinterpretations? Could I send one to my son? The river was wide and full at the point where we stepped out of the van, its beaches muddy and crammed with brightly colored longboats to carry tourists, all of us with our fancy cameras hoping to capture pictures of the floating people's privacy. Our boat putt-putted down the glassy water past everyday life. Men changed shirts on boat decks. Fishermen beat nets overflowing with small, luminescent fish. Boys and girls ran full-court presses on a floating basketball court. Women paddled to the grocery store in long canoes. Water hyacinths choked the shore and eased up the trunks of trees rooted in the river's mud, and sprouts of sparse water grass peaked from the smooth surface, broken only by the occasional wakes of boats. Tourists photographed tourists. We drifted to the juncture where the river fed into a larger body of water. Lake Tonle Sap was almost infinite. Phnom Penh and Batambang were beyond, much farther than my eyes could see. Suddenly, swarms of long paddle boats rushed to our side, hulls brimmed with bananas, bottled water, and orange Fanta sodas jammed into red coolers. One dollar, one dollar, they shouted. Wrinkled old women, a few with snakes around their necks, teeth rotted by betel nut, and cataract-covered eyes stared into my camera's lens. Children, hustlers by speech, innocence by face. A smile did not bring a smile. One dollar, one dollar. They posed made the V for victory sign, begged with their eyes, please, American woman, if you can be here, then you can pay. One dollar, one dollar. When my son was five or six, about the same age as the long-haired boy staring up at my camera, he was obsessed with cars. Names, makes, and assorted automotive trivia fell easily from his tongue. His favorite question to anyone he met what kind of car do you drive? So whenever I stopped by the toy store, he begged for a new model car to add to his collection until I gave in. And I always gave in. 
Manipulator of mother, gentle negotiator, his eyes fixed on mine, the softened gaze of a child who wants something extravagant. These children in the longboats did not beg for the sake of extravagance. They begged to live. Did my son succumb to the eyes, the plaintive pleas? Did he hand over one dollar, one dollar? I did in his name. Anger Tom, Anger Watt, Ta Prea, and Prea Khan. I'd visualize these sacred temples amid steamy and vine-filled jungles, quiet, meditative, hours from the city with clouds of swarming mosquitoes and monkeys screeching overhead. But they were not. The temples had an unexpected commonality, gray stone etched with the suit of time, Buddha sculpted into tower facades, small bunches of fresh flowers, incense sticks poked into sand-filled cans, smoky perfume swirling in the light breeze. Chants loud and soft, prayers of gratitude and pleas for divine inspiration drifted into high towers pointed like lotus buds with wind-softened edges. Holy flowers, perfect in form, height, and majesty. Narrow steps led to unseen altars amidst hundreds of squared stones, wide as my arms and long as my body, piled upon one another like a child's discarded building blocks. I had studied European empires in college and explored ruins in Italy, Greece, and France. But stepping onto these ancient stones, I was overwhelmed by Anger Tom's magic. These ruins were different, mystical. Once a royal city, the last capital of the Angor Empire, more than a million people are speculated to have lived in the areas surrounding Angor Tom. Unlike today, all its gates were open then, each with a special significance. The north was the spiritual entry used by monks. The west, the entrance of the dead. The east, no longer open to the public, the portal of victory and ghosts. This was the entrance that fascinated me. How I longed to walk through that eastern doorway, obscured by the jungle and time, and join the ghost of my son. Reunion in spirit better than none at all. Instead, I crossed the bridge over a moat filled with blooming water lilies and walked through the south gate with the other visitors. We tourists came from many continents, our languages as varied as our countries of origin, As I wandered through the ruins, I eavesdropped, catching snippets of conversations here and there, listening for English, eager to share the moment with someone. Weren't they equally awed by the immensity, the history, the timelessness of these structures? But there seemed no time for questions. Like busy ants, we scampered up the steep steps, marveled at the carvings, the windows within windows. I walked through narrow passages and squatted beside empty pools, amazed at the simplicity, imagining the rituals that took place there. People passed on my left and right, chattering, laughing, rushing to get to the top. I sat still, trying to conceive of the quiet sacredness that must have once pervaded the air. Outside the temple, I separated myself from the crowd and stepped back, taking in the full view. Suddenly, I was struck by the towers and the faces covering them. I let the tenets of each sculpted image of Mahayana Buddhism, 
Lokasvara, the principle of compassion, and Prajnaparamita, the principle of wisdom, infuse me. They were what I needed to appreciate what stood before me, these structures and my future. In my head, I talked with my son like we used to when he was younger. I whispered the story of the bas-reliefs, Jayavarman's attacks, the monkey kings at his side, driving back the Cham, the Vietnamese from Cambodia. I stared at the lovely Sita holding the wounded Rama, protecting him from the chaos of war. Minutes away, the mighty Anger Wat stood beyond a moat almost as wide as the Siem Reap River. A broad, bumpy causeway led to an outer wall dirtied with the silt of centuries. Pillars pitted with bullet holes from the Cambodian Civil War marked this west entrance, and oversized doorways and massive columns stretched left and right as far as I could see. At last, I was where I had dreamed of being, as thrilled as the French explorer Henri Mouhout must have been 150 years before when he made this discovery, hacking through the Cambodian jungle in search of beetles and giant butterflies. Beyond the outer wall, another wide path led past the ancient library to the temple. Palm trees lined the way. A white horse grazed a rolling lawn. Five lotus towers rose like turrets from the temple. Streams of orange-swathed monks passed by, the straps of small silver cameras peeking from their cloth-draped arms. On the second level of the Grand Temple, I came across two Buddhist nuns, silent and wizened, their faces gaunt and their heads shorn, praying before a 20-foot Buddha. Yellow chrysanthemums garlanded the altar and buckets of incense lined the floor around it. In a profane moment, I zoomed my lens to capture their reverence. When the nuns rose and turned toward me, I asked permission to take another picture. The women, their faces serious, stood side by side and looked directly at my lens. I snapped, yearning to breach the forbidden and touch them, arranged them in softer poses than the formal upright ones they'd chosen. After, I bowed as I had been instructed. Thank you. The taller of the two women put her hands together in the prayer position underneath her chin and bowed. Akun. Her voice commanded me to imitate her words and perfect gesture. Akun, I repeated without her force, once, twice, three times, until my intonation matched hers. Akun. Then she raised her joined hands over her head and gave thanks to Buddha. Perhaps she saw something in my eyes. Her instruction was more than an age-old bow. It was a life lesson. Say thank you. Be grateful for what you have, not for what you have lost. Satisfied that I had learned my lesson well, she walked away, leaving my spirit lifted. Akun, Akun, the ghost of my son, my boy, now man, came alive in Angarwat. Had he paused at the lithe images of the Apsara dancers and wondered at the symmetry of the carved figures, the perfection of their curved hands and thick lips? Had he bowed before Buddha, lit incense, and prayed for divine guidance as I did? 
On that temple smooth stairs, I saw him taking two at a time and imagined his unending curiosity, his hands pressed to the walls and the intricate messages carved into them. I sighed, thankful for the splendor of the past around me, thankful for my own past, for the happier years with my son, for the foundations that would surely support this ancient place far beyond my years, for the foundations of love that my son did not understand that would carry him into his future. Ghosts dating back to the 10th century inhabited the temples of the kingdom of Cambodia. Anger Tom granted them a special gate, but in Anger Wat, they lurked in waterless pools, sought their bodies, waited for rescue from the netherworld between life and death. They had been conquered, tortured, shot, murdered in the killing fields, blown apart by landmines. They skulked around the roots of banyan trees in the market and in bullet-ridden columns. In those temples among those ghosts, I believed in the future and its connection to the past. Before I left on my trip, I'd argued with my son. Our relationship, once so close, fell apart along with my marriage. And although the state of California helps adults navigate the technicalities of divorce, there was nothing to help this mother with her child. My son's deep voice had trembled with anger when he told me he was cutting off all communication from me. No hugs, no pinching his cheeks, no him. Standing in the ruins of Ta Prey, the last temple on our tour, those memories returned as I entered the temple built by King Jayavarman VII in honor of his mother. A son's devotion in the lushness of trees and the unseen squawking parrots, smaller than the other temples, pretty and feminine, its massive stones had fallen into lichen-covered piles, banyan tree roots dripped, sinuous like enormous snakes into the hard dirt below. Before another Buddha, I lowered my forehead to the ground. On my knees, comfortable among strangers, tears washed my face. On my knees, I asked for connection and reunion and freedom from my ghosts, for peace with my child. I listened for the somber sounds that once flowed through these walls, a gong for dinner, the call to prayer, a monotone chant of gratitude, the rustle of silk, the whisper of prayers, the padding of bare feet. Akun. You've been listening to season two of There She Goes, a storytelling podcast created by two women travelers and recorded from their homes in Alabama and Louisiana. Our theme music is a selection from the song City of Refuge, created and performed by Abigail Washburn. Thanks to Jay Burgess for engineering. Thanks to our amazing writers for proving how essential women's narratives are and for bringing their voices to There She Goes. And thanks to you, our listeners, for coming along. Be sure to tell your friends about There She Goes and follow us on your favorite platforms. And most of all, come back for more illuminating stories from around the world. <laughs>